And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn initially to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. The fifth, uh, Acts is the fifth, uh, actually some people call it the fifth gospel. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. Well, today is October 31st. On October 31st, 1517, an unknown German priest and lecturer at Wittenberg College walked up to the Wittenberg Castle door, and he did something that was not unique. It was a way that people communicated. He attached to it, we don't know if it was dramatically done with a hammer or not, but he attached a list of concerns that he wanted to invite people to come and debate. He was concerned over a practice that was happening called the selling of indulgences. Now what that really meant was that people could give a large, in many cases, offering to the church, we're talking about the church in Rome, and they could buy their forgiveness. How easy is that? And Luther had a big problem with that. He also had a big problem that the money raised through the selling of indulgences was going to go to the repairs of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The document that he put on the door at Wittenberg Castle began this way. Out of love for the truth and from desire to elucidate it, the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and to dispute them and to dispute on them in that place. Therefore, he asks that those who cannot be present and dispute with him orally shall do so in their absence by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. In other words, he was inviting people to come and let's have a debate, let's have a discussion, let's talk about this. And if you can't make it, you can mail it in. You know, uh, he wanted to have a discussion. His document consisted of 95 statements, some of them no more than a sentence long. It's now known as the 95 Thesis. The first two propositions provided the foundation of his debate with the church that he wanted to do. Now let me read those to you in a little bit of an updated language. The first one was this. When Jesus said repent, he meant that believers should live a whole life of repenting. You see, his concern was that people thought, well, if I pay an offering, then I can go live however I want because I bought my forgiveness. The second one was this. Only God can give salvation not a priest, and by inference, not a pope. What arose out of that document? That simple document that all he wanted to do was have a debate and talk about it? What arose out of that is what we now call the Protestant Reformation. You see, Luther was called to recant his statements repeatedly. He refused to do that. He refused to recant his concerns. Ultimately, several years after he posted that, he was branded a heretic by the Roman church, and he was 
determined to be an outlaw by the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V. Persecution is not something new for those who follow Jesus. It's been part of the history of the church since the very beginning. And sadly, when you study church history, one thing you find is that persecution sometimes came from outside the church, and sometimes it came from within the church. One of the realities that we can't ignore in the book of Acts is that the brand new church found themselves facing the heat of persecution. And that observation leads me to my final principle uh, in this study, and it's simply this. Be prepared to endure hardship and persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. Be prepared to endure hardship and persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you right now, persecution is not my favorite topic to talk about. It's not like on my top 10. Uh, My prayer has been and is this morning that from our survey from the book of Acts, from other pertinent passages from God's words that we're going to see, that we will have, A, a better idea of what constitutes Christian persecution. I'll define that in a minute. And B, we will know how God wants us to respond whenever that time comes for us. I believe God is a God of balance, and I want to make sure I'm balanced. The fact is, there are brothers and sisters in our world today, at this very moment even, who are suffering life-threatening persecution. And I want to be so careful that I don't dishonor their plight. Uh, I, I will in no way equate my maybe being called an offensive name or being shunned by a neighbor or maybe being uh, mistreated by a teacher or maybe even being mistreated by my employer. That doesn't fall on the same level of persecution. It's kind of there. It's a mild one. But when someone is literally putting their life on the line for Jesus. That's kind of way up here where what I sometimes go through is, that's eh, tough, it's hard, but it's not close. I think there are different degrees of persecution. And, and I think we need to be, be careful that we don't succumb to what I call faux and, or false persecution. Not every act I think is persecution is really persecution. Uh, here's a fact. We live right now in what sociologists call post-Christian world. What does that mean? Well, let me give it to you very, very basically, very simply. A post-Christian world is a world where Christianity is not respected in the same way that it once was. That's a a post-Christian world, simply. And and the question is, how do I respond to that? How do I respond to the reality of the world in which I live? And I think we can glean some principles from God's Word to help us with that. According to the website, opendoorsusa.org, 2021 has seen a great deal of Christian persecution. 
According to their website, currently 340 million Christians live in places where they face a high level of persecution and discrimination. In 2021, over 4,000 people have already lost their lives for over their faith. Over 4,000 churches have been destroyed. Over 4,000 believers are being detained and will be sentenced without a trial. Now, we need to be aware of something. People suffer in our world persecution for all sorts of reasons. Ethnic cleansing is horrible and awful and needs to be spoken out against. There are those who are persecuted for the political stance that they hold. There are those who are persecuted for standing against violence and gang violence in their community or neighborhood. We have people coming to this country right now from Afghanistan who worked in cooperation with our military and were they to have stayed in their country of origin that they love, that they grew up in, that they didn't want to leave, they would suffer persecution and possibly death. All of those things and more are wrong. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to limit our scope of persecution to persecution because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to give you a definition. And I'm going to put it on the screen because it's kind of long. Christian persecution is, in my book, any attempt to destroy the message of Jesus Christ and the work of his followers through intimidation, physical harm, imprisonment, or execution. Christian persecution is any attempt to destroy the message of Jesus Christ and the work of his followers through intimidation, physical harm, imprisonment, or execution. So, with all of that being said... Let's go to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to look at some reasons, and then we're going to finish with some responses. So pick it up in Acts chapter 5. Uh, wait, before you, okay, stay there. One more thing. And I think this is really important. When we think about persecution, remember this. People are the agents but not the source of persecution. People are the agents, but not the source of persecution. What do you mean by that? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6, and he said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. If you don't believe that there are spiritual forces of evil out there, then I'm going to tell you, you're missing something, because Paul did, I do, not that I'm equating myself with Paul, but, you know, uh, there are. It's very important that we understand we are in a daily spiritual battle and that people who may, there are people who may say and do harmful, painful things, and yet we've got to remember people are not necessarily our enemy. How could Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins, pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, because he knew that the people who were perpetrating that against him were working in construct with Satan, who is the source of persecution. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says of Ephesians, Paul says, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
In other words, there's a real sense in which this physical world is his domain. The late Dallas Willard defined the role of Satan this way. He presides over the thought patterns, social organization, the forces of human society try to, trying to move them in opposition to God. I really like that. Satan is using everything on this earth, people's thought patterns, social organizations, governments, anything he can to move everything in opposition to God. So the sin and the brokenness and the human chaos in our world is the work of Satan using the natural bent of humans and their natural selfishness to try to create that chaos. And more specifically to our point, the enemy uses anyone he can to try to destroy the work of God. When we see people as agents of persecution, but Satan as its source, then we can respond the way Jesus did. And we can pray for them. And we can pray for their salvation. The book of Acts gives us some clues of how Satan does this. Now we go to chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And we read in chapter 5 of Acts, beginning in verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade, no one else joined them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates and who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the, in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. And when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. They sent to the jail for the apostles, but on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. I'll just stop right there. That gives us what we need for now. People, Christians, are sometimes persecuted when power structures seem threatened. Christians can be persecuted when power structures seem threatened. That's what we have happening here. The movement of Jesus in those first four verses, five verses, is growing. It's growing. It's, I mean, there are things happening that are just amazing. People are growing and people are coming to know them and, and other people are really afraid because they don't want to kind of get caught up in the, in the drift of it. And as a result, the party in power in Jerusalem were the Sadducees. You've heard of Pharisees and Sadducees. The, the Sadducees were a very politically motivated group of religious leaders. They, they were very much in 
uh, construct with the Roman government. They, were, they, they wanted to keep everything calm in Jerusalem because they had power that the Roman government had given to them. And so they did not want any upheaval. And, and they had authority. They had arresting authority. So they put these guys in jail. And why did they do it? Luke tells us, he tells us in verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. They did not want people to think they were no longer in charge. They wanted their power structure to stay secure. So they were going to show the people, you may see great things happening, but we're the people you answer to. We're the ones who are still in charge. And so they put the apostles in jail for preaching Jesus. And I absolutely love God's sense of humor here. It's subtle, but it's there. The angel comes, opens the door, lets them out, gives them instructions to go back and preach, and then just like a dutiful angel, locks the door back behind him. You know? He did, you know, oh, hey, maybe it, was a, maybe it was maybe an apprentice angel. Hey, go back and lock that door, man. But anyway, the door is locked behind them. So when they, they send for them, because they're, they're getting the whole Sanhedrin together, this body of religious leaders who have some legal authority, and they're going to bring these guys to task, they find out that ain't nobody there. They're out there preaching just like you told them not to. But there's another reason, and it's still in this passage. Um, verse 25, somebody says, They're out, the, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And then the captain went to his officers. They brought the apostles. They did not use force. This is verse 26, because they feared that the people would stone them. The power structure is so tenuous that they have to be careful how they manage the apostles because they are so popular among the people. But they bring him in. They appear before the Sanhedrin. They're questioned. And uh, they're, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Here's the second way sometimes a reason sometimes Christians are persecuted. Christians can sometimes be persecuted when perceived images must be maintained. We told you not to do this. We're the authority here. You know, chapter 4, earlier, Peter said there is only one name under heaven whereby everyone should be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. You know, and so there, you're, 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 you have violated our orders. You have gone against our orders. But I think that what's really driving them is that second part of that sentence. You are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I think that's the real issue. You are destroying our image as the religious stakeholders. You are making us out to be guilty when all we were doing was protecting the, the peace of Jerusalem from this rabble rouser, this rebel. Peter and the other apostles, verse 29, reply, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. Yeah, you are guilty, by the way. Whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given those who obey him. So they're angry, they're furious. There's a group that wants to put him to death. They send them out so they can deliberate. And we won't read every all of it, but there's a guy named Gamaliel. He's an older rabbi, and, and, and he speaks with wisdom. And this was a time when the elders were highly regarded. And he points out, you know, there was this movement here, and it kind of fl flustered. And there was this movement over here, and it floundered and all. And, and he says, here's what I say. Verse 38 of Acts 5, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Wow, what a wise man. The fact of the matter is they were flogged and then let go. But remember, our enemy uses anything and everything at his disposal to try to disrupt the Word of God and disrupt the spread of the Word of God. These men were determined not to be made a scapegoat of anything, even though they were the ones who brought about, on human level, the death of Jesus. I mean, it really was the Sadducees that got the crowd all riled up and crucify him. These were the guys. These were the guys that had Pilate's ear that were able to finally convince him to release Barabbas and send Jesus to the cross. These were the guys that had so much of Pilate's ear that at the end of Matthew, when the body is raised and the tomb is empty, they're able to protect the guards and say the, the disciples rolled the stone away and took the body away and now this is the story they're telling. I mean, they had some power and yet they kept trying to justify themselves. They were going to find any way they could to justify themselves and show their authority. Flip over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 we looked at last week. Remember the, the seven that were chosen and the first one was Stephen and he was not only full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, but he was full of faith. And when you look about the persecution around the world, one of the things we see is there are authoritarian regimes who target Christians simply because Christians don't fit their scheme Simply because Christians who truly follow Jesus are not prone to violent outbursts and they become an easy target. And in fact, there are various places in our world where there is no willingness to tolerate or even allow for any sense of religious freedom, especially when the minority faith is Christianity. The Jewish leaders in Acts, on the one hand, truly thought that one, in one sense they were upholding the law. And, and, and that's what happens. Sometimes Christians are persecuted when people feel their own religion is being somehow attacked. Now, there are individuals who lead radical religious movements for their own selfish goals. There, but there are also followers and adherents of those movements who truly believe in some way they are protecting truth. 
So here's Stephen. He's this man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. And somehow this guy is seen as a threat by those who are following Judaism. And since they could not get to the apostles, Acts chapter 5, then they said, okay, let's go for somebody kind of lower down on the structure. Let's go for someone else. Let's, let's see if we can get someone who had delegated authority. He's not as important as they are in their mind. So they find Stephen, but, they, but what they find in Stephen is more than a match. More than a match for, for what they had to do. And they started making up stuff to condemn him. I think that's one of the ploys of the enemy in persecution. To have false accusation made and then believe. So what do we see here? We'll pick it up in uh, verse 8 of chapter 6. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. I don't know how you can speak blasphemous words against Moses, who was just a man, but I'm just reading. So they stirred up the people, the elders, the teachers, the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witness who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of a face of an angel. And for all of chapter 7, all the way up to verse 53, Stephen speaks. And Stephen gives the history of Israel. And Stephen shows how Christ is woven through the history of Israel. And he shows how that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised. Some of the stuff we're going through on Thursday nights. How that this is the promised Messiah. And, and, and his detractors are so set against him. They are so set against anything he says and, and so they are convinced that there is no amount of evidence, even from the Holy Spirit, that will change their minds. He's wrong. We're right. Nothing's going to change us. He needs to go. He's a distraction. Verse 54, they are so angry. They are physically angry. And they take him out and they stone him. Why? Because they believe in their hearts, that they are protecting their religion, that they are protecting the truth, and what they're really protecting is that which they have been falsely deluded to see. But it happens. Here's a disturbing fact. It is possible to make a lot of money from religious practices. That's what Martin Luther was speaking out against in the 95 Thesis. We've seen it time and time again in our own observations. Uh, one of the reasons I think we live in a post-Christian world is the disenchantment many have over so-called Christian leaders who are making bank. Uh, and the first century was no difference. It was no different. Turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, we have Paul in Ephesus. 
And uh, the word of God is spreading in that city. Ephesus was one of the most popular attractions, as it were, in the ancient world because it was the site of what is called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In Ephesus, there was the temple to the goddess Artemis. The Roman name for this goddess was Diana. Uh, And it was an amazing structure. It was made entirely of marble. It was 377 feet long. It was 180 feet wide. It was 60 feet tall. And the entire structure was supported with 127 large marble columns. It was an ancient attraction. You would go there. It was staffed by temple prostitutes. And there was so much that went on there. And and there was something else that was going on in this ancient attraction. A group of enterprising silversmiths decided, hey, if we come up with a, a mold and we are able to make little statuettes of the goddess Diana or the goddess Artemis, then we can sell these out in the marketplace. We can make some coin. We can make some money. And they were making a good living selling these to people who came through. But there was a problem. One of the silversmiths named Demetrius began to get wind of this movement that was happening in in Ephesus and about this new religion that Paul was preaching that wasn't just Judaism. I mean, we can put up with the Jews, but this is really different. And he was preaching against the need for idols. And and, and as a result, this this could not only hinder the worship of Artemis, but more importantly, this could get in the way of the money that we're making. And he starts a riot. And the rioters grab some of Paul's companions and they bring them to another amazing structure in Ephesus, this large amphitheater, and they wanted a trial immediately. In fact, Ephesians chapter uh, 19, uh, let's see, where is that? 1932. I go to that verse because when I was an RA at the Moody Bible Institute, The guys on my floor said, this ought to be our theme verse. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. They they wanted that to be our theme verse for our floor meetings. You know, Howington, you run a meeting that's just crazy. So here it is. But anyway, I say that. Uh, Things got settled down. Paul eventually leaves Macedonia. He heads back to Jerusalem. Eventually he's arrested. And put to prison. But here's our our reason. Sometimes Christians are persecuted when people feel they must protect their livelihood based on a religious system. Christianity sometimes changes cultures. Because when a culture is moving away from God and the people of that culture come to faith in Christ and begin to move toward God, they realize their culture might need to change. Now, I know that's not great language today, but there are times when our culture needs to change. And that, this was one of those times. And as a result, people were drawn, and eventually, like I said, the problem got quelled, but the, the underlying fact was there. 
In fact, throughout the Roman Empire, there was a thing called emperor worship that kind of became a big thing, especially a little later on. And and emperor worship was like uh, in different cities, there would be a statue of the emperor, whoever the reigning emperor was. And once a year, everybody was to go to that statue, bring a little bit of an offering, and say, Hail Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And then they would get a little check mark on whatever, you know, somehow that would be indicated that they had done their duty, and now they could go and do the things they needed to do. And when you get to the book of Revelation, you find that there are some who wouldn't worship the emperor, and they were struggling in their communities, struggling economically, because they had chosen to worship only one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only one Lord, Jesus Christ, and as a result, they were kind of ostracized. It happens Persecution happens, and we can point to a variety of human reasons as we have, but we must never forget that Satan is behind all Christian persecution, or I would expand that, all persecution. And one thing to note, time and time again in the Bible and in the history of Christianity, times of persecution tend to result in the body of Christ actually growing. People wonder, as they watch Christians who are willing to suffer for their faith, they say, why is that? What do you believe that you would willing to do? There's nothing I believe that I would willing to suffer that for. I'll give up. And Christians don't. And people go, whoa, what's, what's so important? And it gives opportunity for folks to see what it looks like when someone clings to their faith, no matter how difficult Well, that's all well and good, Pastor Scott, but what do we do? How do we respond? I want to wrap this up very briefly with five responses that I believe come from God's Word, and here's the first one. Pray for those who persecute. Remember, agents of persecution aren't necessarily the spiritual source of persecution. They may act in ways that are harmful, even evil, but they are not the source. And Jesus told us in Matthew 5.44, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute. Secondly, pray for the persecuted. It's amazing whenever you sit down, if you go to Open Doors USA or Voice of the Martyrs, whatever source you go to, the constant theme from people who are persecuted is don't forget us. Pray for us. Pray that that we are able to stand up. Typically, it's not pray that we're just relieved from this. It's pray that we will not falter. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter was in prison, again, the church gathered to pray. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul urges the Ephesians church to pray for him as he's in chains. Pray for the persecuted. You may not know their names, you may not know their situations, but I would encourage you, pray for those who are persecuted. God knows their situations and their names, just pray for them. A third thing, expect persecution, but don't invite it. 1 Timothy 3.12 tells us that persecution is inevitable. 
Paul writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Everyone, if you want to live a godly life, you're going to face some form of persecution in one way, shape, or form. It's going to happen. So don't be surprised when it comes your way. But we also have another encouragement from Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right, for it is God's will. That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We ought not to be surprised when persecution comes our way, but we don't go out and invite it. We don't go out and try to make it happen. We live the lives that we're asked to live. We live the lives where God has placed us. We trust Him and we lean on Him. And when persecution comes, we stand for Him. But here's a fourth thing. Exercise God's grace to remove yourself from the situation when possible. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes God provides relief from persecution. In Acts chapter 8, due to persecution in Jerusalem, the church is scattered. They go throughout. They just, people leave. Remember, they had already come from all these places. They go back. And verse 4 tells us that they took the word of God with them. So in a sense, God said, okay, I'm using this persecution to get you out of here so that you'll go out to the rest of the world and you'll take this message with you. In Acts chapter 9, that brand new believer, Saul, who had met God on the road to Damascus, now takes everything that he said and his eyes are open and all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, uh, his knowledge of everything he studied, he says, Oh, I now see Christ. He begins to preach Christ in Damascus instead of arresting people. And and people say, we are going to kill this guy. we got to get rid of him. And what do they do? They put him in a basket and they lower him down over the roof and he escapes to Jerusalem. Sometimes we're in a position where we have to stand and take it. And other times we take the opportunity that God provides us and we remove ourselves from the persecution. Finally. Number five, resist the urge to fight back or get even. Never forget, God is a God of justice. God is a God who promises to pay back evil in due time. I think the Apostle Paul best summarizes the entire topic in Romans 12, 17 to 21, when he writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't invite persecution. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. 504 years ago, 
Martin Luther did not know what he was getting himself into. He simply saw a problem, and he invited a debate on the issue of the day because the truth about forgiveness and sin was not being taught. And he wanted to stand up for what he understood the Word of God to teach. His goal was never to be branded a heretic. His goal was never to become an enemy of the state. That's how it can happen with persecution. We simply and humbly live our lives as citizens in the place where God has put us. We pursue godliness. And when the enemy stirs up thoughts, ideas, accusations against us by neighbors or governments or any other source, we will face the heat of persecution. How we respond will tell others more about our faith in Jesus than we can ever imagine. And let me remind you of this final reality. All persecution is temporary. Our promise is eternity with Christ. Let's pray. Father, these have not been easy things to discuss. This is not a uh, user-friendly, touchy-feely topic, and yet it's necessary. I thank you that at this moment, we are living our lives, for the most part, peacefully, enjoying so many freedoms that we have, aware of concerns and issues, but able to meet and freely worship you and serve you. But I pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare our lives, and remind us that everyone, who wants to live a godly life, will face persecution. May we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffered the shame, but now sits at the right hand of the Father. May we continue to focus on you and to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.